So now Philip begins to move south. So he begins to move down the, the, the western coast of Israel on a road that's called and known as the Way of the Sea. And down the Way of the Sea, this would have taken through Gaza. And Gaza was a strip. Um, one of the, it's a transition from all the inhabited areas of Israel going into the Negev, which is the desert, which then leads into the Sinai Peninsula and then goes down to Egypt. On the way down on this road, he's going to encounter a eunuch, an Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopia is south of Egypt, and we're going to see this incident. Now an angel of Yahweh, the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down to the Jerusalem of Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. First, Ethiopia was frequently seen as the furthest parts of the earth. You can't get any further south than that. Okay, And the Roman Empire has pretty much gone down to Ethiopia. And the, the world doesn't really see anything beyond the Roman Empire. And you don't really, it gets the further and further south into Africa you get at this time, the harder and harder it is to travel down there. Um, the, 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 the rarity of people actually traveling down there. So the stories you get back um, becoming foreign. Even today, there are many people in Africa who have very different customs than anything that we're even familiar with. And even maybe even look odd to us in some ways, let alone way, way back then when they're not even getting pictures or National Geographic understandings of things, they just hear weird stories. And I'm sure the game of telephone coming up hundreds of miles from word of mouth just exaggerates it even more. And so that seems so alien to most people. So Ethiopia was considered the furthest parts of the earth. They were also very, very dark skinned. And so they were way darker than anybody was really used to seeing on a common basis. Now Ethiopians obviously came up to Jerusalem, people saw them, but not in the same prolific um, numbers as they would Middle Eastern skin and that kind of stuff. And so many people saw Ethiopia as the furthest parts of the world, southern going. And so in a theological sense, Luke is already showing you the gospel is going to the furthest parts of the earth southern-wise. And obviously we know today, well, that's actually not that far because you can fly that in a couple of hours on an airplane if you're in northern part of Africa down the southern part of Africa. But the implication is if it can go that far, then it can keep going further even then. And so he's going to come to him. Now Candace um, was a dynastic title of the queen mother of Ethiopia at that time, and she served as the head of the government in between 25 and 41 AD. And so he's a high up official. Now he's called a eunuch, and a eunuch is basically where they would remove the, the male genitalia in order to keep them away from, they would allow, so basically you need people to attend to your harem of wives, and you want them to attend to your daughters, and you don't want them to be sleeping with any of them or be tempted to sleep with any of them. And so they would cut off the male genitalia and the male, um, um, yeah, and so they would cut it off in order to keep them from strength. So to be tempted, and they, I mean, they literally physically cannot have sex anymore. And it's a painful process, and it, if it's not, if it can go wrong in any kind of way, you can be in pain your rest of your life every time you go to the bathroom. At this point in human history, though, the word eunuch started becoming the official title of a, 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 an a office in government. And so he may be that, or he may not be that. 
Um, there's a good chance that he probably is, just because it still is that's the most common way. And if he's attending to Candace and that kind of stuff, there's a good chance that he would be that way. And one of the points that God is making is not only is he going to um, the furthest parts of the earth, but he's going to a man who has no male genitalia, a man who is a cripple and in the way that the world would see him, a man who is no longer a man in the way that the world would view him, and that male chauvinist pig kind of a sense. And, and more importantly than that, a man who can never be circumcised, a man who technically could never really be a part of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, we know that's not true with God. God would understand and be like, okay, that's not possible, and I'm not the kind of God who would get, get, kick you out of the kingdom of God on that technicality. It has nothing to do with you. But in the Jewish mindset, yeah, he would never be able to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant. And so this is huge because what God is showing us, I can bypass all that. Because it's not about circumcision of the body. It's circumcision of the heart. And that's who God is sending Philip to. And notice, this is pretty much one of the very rare occasions where God specifically says, go and seek this person out. Or go and wait there because I have a very specific person in mind that's going to cross paths with you. This does not happen. Most of the time we see them, they go to a city and lots of people come to faith. We're never, we very rarely see God saying, go and seek this person out. We're going to see it again with um, Cornelius, the Roman Satorian, which is another thing in itself. But God is now specifically seeking this man out in order to make a point about who the gospel is for and to fulfill Isaiah 4, or sorry, Isaiah 6 and Micah 4, where it's, no, sorry, Isaiah 2 and Micah 4, where it says, and this new Jerusalem, the cosmic mountain of God, all the nations will come and flood into it, and even the lame and the cripple will come in. And it also fulfills the parable of Jesus when the Jews reject the gospel and the banquet of the great king and his parable. And so the king wants people to be at his banquet, so he goes out and he invites the poor. And then they come in, and there's still room at the banquet. So he says, go out and invite the lame and the sick and all of them, and they come in. And the point is, I don't care about any of those conditions. I only care about humans. This is what God is sending him to. The Spirit told him to go. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Now this is, chariots go fast. They can go easily 40 to 50 miles an hour. And, and Philip ran up to it. Now, if you remember, way back in the day when we went through Kings, Elijah orchestrated God through him the coming of the lightning down on the, Baal, on the, the altar in contrast to the Baal altar, which was fire. And it burned up the altar and the stones and the sacrifice and everything. And then Elijah said, the rain is coming. And the rain started to come. And he was there with King Ahab. And Ahab was the king of the Israel in the north, the Jews. And he was a very wicked, evil king. And Elijah said, the rain is coming. Get on your chariot and get as fast as you can back to your palace. Because Ahab had to ride through the Jezreel Valley. And it hadn't rained for three years. And when that flash floods come... When the rain comes, they come down the mountains. The Jezreel Valley is surrounded by mountains all sides. And the rain would just pour in. It would turn into a swamp. And chariot wheels don't do well in swampy territory. 
So he says, get back to the palace as fast as you can, or you're going to be mucking it out in your boots on the way home, and you're going to have to leave your chariots behind. And so this is significant, because God, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, 14 through 20, commanded that the king was not allowed to have horses and chariots, ever. They weren't allowed to have that, because it's military technology. And they were never allowed to have that, because one, military technology would make them more powerful, they would become powerful and corrupt and warmongers and then go seek and conquer people or oppress their own people, which God didn't want. And two, when God commanded him to go into battle, he wanted to be obvious to everybody that he was giving the victory. That there's no way a bunch of people with swords could overtake other people with horses and chariots and siege engines unless God was with them. So it was forbidden for the king to have horses and chariots. Anybody in Israel for have horses and chariots. Elijah, the Spirit of God comes upon Elijah and Elijah outruns the chariot. It's a 13-mile journey. The chariot's going over 40 miles an hour, and he has a head start, and Elijah catches up with him, passes him by, and beats him back to Jezreel, the city that he was living in. And I know this seems like, wow, that's really cool. There's actually a really, I don't know how it was famous to me, um, there was a movie called The Adventures of Baron Mountchausen, and there's this guy, that, old guy that ran really fast, and that's always the image that has in my head because Elijah was really old. So um, that's always the image that I have in my head when he does it. Because and here's why. The prophet was nicknamed by God the horse and chariots of God. And basically, if you had, because the prophet was the divine counsel of Yahweh. He was on the divine counsel. He was the only one that knew the will of God. He was the only one that could speak the will of God. Or she. There were female prophetess as well. They were the only ones that knew the will of God. They were the only ones to speak it. So therefore, the prophet symbolically represented the horses and chariots of God. And if the prophet spoke, thus saith Yahweh, you will be victorious, the horses and chariots of God would be with you. In fact, there's a scene where Elijah says, open my servant's eyes so he can see what I can see. And he sees thousands upon thousands of angelic horses and chariots in heaven ready to fight on their behalf. And Elijah could see this all the time constantly around him and he was in tune with the spiritual realm and so he symbolically represented the horse and chariots of god so what god is showing is my horse and chariots are far superior to your horse and chariots and now all these thousands of years later the spirit of god is on philip not a prophet and the official first testament sense but a prophet who now has the divine counsel inside of him he is not brought up under the divine counsel the Holy Spirit and Christ and God have been put inside of him. And he has the divine counsel in him. And he is once again mimicking, uh, or once again Elijah is being mimicked in different ways, as one who can catch up to a chariot. Because the Holy Spirit is the same as it was the one that came on Elijah. And he's catching up with a chariot to come and talk to an Ethiopian official of a very powerful kingdom to share the gospel. And he hears him reading Isaiah, which means this Ethiopian is a God-fear. Okay? A God-fear is a Gentile who's put their faith in Yahweh and is, wants to follow Yahweh, decides that they're putting their faith in Yahweh, they're going to be a believer in Yahweh and do all those things, but they, have dis- but they haven't gone all the way of getting circumcised and, um, and truly becoming kosher. And when they get circumcised and go kosher, then they're called a proselyte. Now, obviously, if he's a true eunuch, he can never become a proselyte, according to the Jewish mindset. 
He has come up to Jerusalem, which he'd be required to go up at least three years, but most of the Hellenistic people would only go up maybe once a year. And he's gone all the way up for the festivals, and he's coming back, and he's reading from Isaiah. And he just happens to be reading from Isaiah 53, the one of the very clearest and only real in-depth prophecies of the Messianic figure dying on the cross as a sacrificial lamb. He says this, Philip ran up the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So obviously his understanding of the Bible is very limited. Um, and that would be natural. There's not a lot of Jews down in Ethiopia at this time. He's not making very frequent trips up. The Jews would not respect him or acknowledge him, and most of them in any kind of a way. And so he's not getting a lot of lessons. And here we have an incredibly educated man. He's going to be edu- the elite of education. He's in charge of um, political and government records. He's probably somehow associated with laws, either enforcing them or communicating them or directing people. And so he invited Philip to come and sit with him. The eunuch was reading the passage of Scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before the shear is silent. So he did not open his mouth, and in his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Now this is significant, because this sacrificial lamb Jesus had no physical descendants. He had no biological children. So the passage says, who can speak of his descendants as if he has no because he died. But then you could also interpret this of who can speak of his descendants because they're different. They're not biological. They're spiritual. And the, 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 the coolness of this passage here is that this eunuch who can never ever have any descendants of his own is now going to become a descendant of Jesus who had no biological descendants. And then through his faith, he's going to be able to disciple others and give them the Holy Spirit through his preaching and have his own descendants. God is going to create a family for this eunuch in a way that this eunuch can never have. In the same way that Christ has a family in a way that he could never have if he just simply died. And so he's going to become part of something greater. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking talking about? Himself or someone else? Now this is important because Israel could not accept the fact that the Messiah would suffer like this. And even though the context is so clear, these are called the suffering servant passages. There's multiple of them. There's Isaiah 42, there's Isaiah 53, there's Isaiah 64. There's, a, there's about six or seven of them, depending on how you count them. And, and they're called the suffering servant passages. And it's where God clearly says, my servant who I have chosen. And then it talks about him suffering or bearing the rod of men or being inflicted or even being killed like a sacrificial lamb, like Isaiah 53. This is the clearest and longest suffering servant passages. And all the language of my chosen one, my servant, the one that I've called, clearly to every Jew, acknowledge that this is the Messiah. This is messianic terminology. Yet the Jews, the Messiah is not going to suffer. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to be the ultimate prophet and king of God. And he's going to kick Gentile foreign oppression power. We are in. 
Okay, and he's going to free us. And Numbers 23, or Numbers um, 24, and other passages make it very clear that he's going to be a king. He's going to crush the heads of Edom and Seir and all this kind of stuff. And so they said, that must be us. We are the suffering servant. It's very natural for the eunuch, maybe, if he's heard certain things, that he's gone up to the temple. The temple, this is part, these are passages that they would read as the Jews were going to the temple to sacrifice the lamb. And so it's very clear that he might have heard some Pharisees or some rabbis talking about how Israel is a suffering servant. And so Isaiah is the prophet. So his natural question is, is this, is this guy talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? I'm so confused because the rabbis never agree on anything. And Philip began with the very, that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And of course, he unpacked it all. Who this is really about. The Messiah. It is the Messiah. And the Messiah is Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is the water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Now what's interesting is the eunuch is the one that leads the road on this one. At Pentecost, Peter said, let's get people baptized. The eunuch is saying, I want to be baptized. Down into the water, Philip baptized him. And then he came out of the water. The spirit of Yahweh suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip is taken away and immediately just teleported somewhere else. And this is showing the eunuch that this is definitely the power of God. And why God chose to teleport Philip and not have some physical Holy Spirit come on, I don't know. Maybe because the Holy Spirit wasn't coming in a large group and it would have been as obvious. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But this is the way that God chose to validate supernaturally to the eunuch that something had happened to him that was way more than anything that the Jews had ever offered them through their own understanding of the scripture without Christ. God baptized the eunuch. And this is the first Gentile that is truly coming to Christ. This is when the door is starting to open to the Gentiles coming to Christ. And you we're talking about the furthest parts of the earth. We're, we're talking about a eunuch. We're talking about a non-Jew. We're talking about a Gentile who is high up in government of a foreign nation. And then imagine the influence that he would have when he went back to Ethiopia. The influence he would have. A political, respected official and the palace of the queen and the same way when God used Elisha to witness to Naaman or Naaman um, the Syrian general and that Syrian general said look I have power whatever I say happens and then he would go back to Aram and Syria as a believer imagine the influence and the voice that he had the Roman soldier who came to Christ under Jesus and goes back into the elite of the elite of soldiers in the palace of the Roman Empire. Imagine the voice that he would have. And so what God is showing here is that he can use anybody and he can bring anybody to Christ because the gospel is for all. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. 
I really like to be there when he appeared in Azatos and just see the look on his face. Like, like, oh my gosh, like how did he get here? So Azatos is further up the Israelite coast. It is on the coast of Israel and miles north. It is, um, so he's teleported up there. And then he begins to preach the gospel from city to city to city. And then he goes to Caesarea. And Caesarea is in the northern part of Israel. And he then puts down roots there. And he begins to share the gospel. And he lives there. And he starts a church. And we will not see him again for another 20 years. And when we see him 20 years, he's still in Caesarea and he has daughters. And what is so interesting about this is, here's a man that is powerfully used by God. It is clear that the Spirit is empowering him to do miracles. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. He's preaching the gospel. He's going to the elite. He's going to the people down low. He's going to magicians. He is teleported by God. God is using him and blessing him. And when we later we meet his daughters, his daughters will be prophetess themselves. So God is still obviously smiling upon him and favoring him. And yet he has chose to share the gospel in a city for 20 years. And this gives you the idea, or it makes it clear that even in the early days of the church, God did not expect everybody to be a full-time missionary. Even the very early days of the gospel, when it had to be spread very quickly, and there was no technological means to do as fast as we could, God did not mean go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria in the first parts of the earth for literally every single person to geographically make all those travels for their entire life. That it's okay to not be a missionary. In fact, I really, really don't like the way that we use missionaries. And I don't mean this in a bad criticism kind of way. But the gospel makes it very clear that we're all missionaries. And that, yes, there are some called to go out there. And yes, we should lay hands on them and pray for them and support them financially. And go out there and travel and meet them and support them. But... If you work at Chase Bank, if you work at the Marysville Power Plant, if you're in the neighborhood block watch or McDonald's or whatever, 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 you are a missionary. And we should be laying on hands on you. We should be praying for you. We should be supporting you. And and this idea of missionary is everybody. We are all called to expand the garden. We are all called to expand the kingdom of God. Some will go out, like Paul and Barnabas, and some will just... Move about 20 or 30 miles north of Jerusalem, probably back close to his original hometown, start a family, have a home, and for the next 20 years faithfully serve God and be a missionary in the northern part of Israel without traveling geographically in any kind of a way. And I think this is very, very, very important observation because I think we have this idea that everyone in the early church were missionaries. And then we feel guilty because we're supposed to be like that early church, right? And then we feel like missionaries are a higher class of Christian. Um, And and yes, there's an amazing bravery there, but there's an amazing bravery being completely alone at Chase Bank too. And and, in affirmative action and and, in new age teachings and and this equality and all that kind of stuff too, right? There's, There's bravery wherever, there's bravery going into the schools. In public schools, there's bravery in being in some of your neighborhoods. There's bravery in like being a part of a union at a, a, a factory or something like that that are very hostile and all about politics and that kind of stuff, right? There's bravery in all those things. It's just different. 
And, and think about it. Even the apostles, they stay in Jerusalem their entire life. Yes, they go to some neighboring cities, but they don't go out like Paul does. They even say, we're going to stay here. And so even the apostles of God were not missionaries in a geographical foreign country traveling kind of a sense and the way that we think of it. And so there is nothing wrong with being a missionary in a geographical traveling sense as long as you're a missionary in the expansion of the kingdom of God's sense. And that's all that God has called us to. And if he's called you to stay put, stay put. If he's called you to travel, travel. That's the important part.